Welcome to Healthy vs. Toxic, the podcast where licensed mental health professionals explore what makes a relationship healthy or unhealthy or even abusive, all from a scientifically informed perspective. Hello, this is Dr. Grande. Today's question asks if I can talk about the difference between reactive attachment disorder and disinhibited social engagement disorder, so RAD and DSED, and also the difference between those two disorders and autism, how one can differentiate these disorders. So when talking about RAD, DSED, and autism, it's important to remember here that we don't have a lot of literature to go on. And in terms of my clinical experience, I do have a fair amount of experience working with people diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, but I don't have a lot of experience with RAD or DSED. Most of my experience there would be supervising counselors who treat clients with those disorders. But even looking at those numbers, we're talking about a very small number of people. Because when we look at RAD and DSED, we're talking about a lot of times children in institutional settings. And there's just only so many counselors that would work in those settings and only so many opportunities to supervise counselors in that role. So RAD and DSED are rare disorders, and they appear to affect a specific population at a fairly high rate, children that have been neglected in institutions, and they don't seem to affect the rest of the population as much, right? So it's kind of an unusual pair of disorders in that way. So now let's take a look at the definition for reactive attachment disorder as we see it listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM. The arrangement here in terms of the definition, the arrangement of the symptom criteria and other criteria is a little unusual compared to the other diagnoses we see in the DSM. So with RAD, we see criterion A. With this criterion, we see inhibited emotionally and withdrawn behavior. And we see two criteria under that. A child rarely seeks comfort when distressed and rarely responds to comfort when distressed. Then we move to criterion B. This has to do with social emotional disturbance. And we see that an individual has to meet two of the following. Minimal social emotional responsiveness, limited positive affect, and episodes of unexplained irritability, sadness, or fearfulness. Then we move to really the most unusual criterion, criterion C. This would be patterns of extremes of insufficient care. And one of the following must be met here. Social neglect or deprivation in the form of persistent lack of having emotional needs for comfort, stimulation, and affection met by caregiving adults. The second one, repeated changes in primary caregivers. And the third one, being raised in unusual settings that limit opportunities to form selective attachments. So really what's being talked about here for the most part would be institutions, like I mentioned before. That's really where we see this disorder diagnosed. Moving to criterion D, criterion D refers back to criterion C. It says the criterion C must have happened first. So the social neglect is presumed to be responsible for the behavior. This is really the unusual part of this definition, criterion C, and then of course criterion D making this statement. We see as well here that criterion A, the symptom criteria, they must start after criterion C is met. So again, this is consistent with the idea 
that criterion C, the social neglect, is what caused the disturbance. So then looking at the other criteria, we see that the criteria for autism are not met. So in the DSM, the way it's worded currently, you cannot have comorbid RAD and autism. The disturbance is evident before age five. The developmental age of the child is at least nine months. If the disorder is persistent for more than 12 months, it can be labeled as persistent, and it can be labeled as severe if all the symptoms are exhibited. Now moving on to disinhibited social engagement disorder, DSCD. This is fairly similar in a lot of ways to RAD. The key difference would be criterion A. So with this criterion, we see a pattern of behavior in which a child actively approaches and interacts with unfamiliar adults. And two of the following criteria must be met to meet criterion A. Reduced reticence in approaching and interacting with unfamiliar adults. Overly familiar verbal or physical behavior. Diminished or absent checking back with an adult caregiver after venturing away, even in unfamiliar settings. And the last one is a willingness to go off with an unfamiliar adult with little or no hesitation. So again, this is the part of DSCD that's really different than RED. There's a few other differences, but largely after this, they are quite similar. So we see that this disorder can easily be confused with ADHD, but in theory, it wouldn't be too easy to confuse with reactive attachment disorder, right? Because that criterion A is so different. So in theory, again, it should be easy to separate from RAD. So RAD and DSCD should be easy to differentiate, but RAD and DSCD when compared to autism, this is where we'd have more difficulty differentiating. So we can see that DSCD and RAD have the same exact etiology. Again, that social neglect component. With RAD, we'd expect to see depressive symptoms and withdrawn behavior, and DSCD is characterized by disinhibition and externalizing behavior. So if we look at these two disorders, what really stands out here in terms of being unusual is that clear etiology. That's one part. Again, we don't see a lot of disorders in the DSM where we can really point to one thing and say this caused the disorder. That is the case with RAD and DSCD. The other unusual component is the fact that these disorders are not described in adults. So we don't really have any information in the research literature or very little that tells us what these disorders would look like in an adult. The research is really focused on children, mostly younger than five years old. So we have somewhat of a picture from ages like five to 10 and 10 to 15, but it gets quite fuzzy after age 15. And again, with adults, little or no information is available. So we don't know how this presents in adults. This really creates a problem for clinical practice. So if you're treating somebody in their 20s or 30s and they were originally diagnosed with RAD, you wouldn't really know what to expect. The course isn't known extending that far into the lifespan. Now, not surprisingly with these two disorders, a lot of researchers have questioned if they're really separate disorders in the first place. But findings do support the idea that there's two sub-patterns of attachment and they are associated but technically distinct syndromes. We see in the research literature that the patterns demonstrate stability over periods of time, like two years or more, and were distinguishable from more well-established disorders such as depression and externalizing disorders. 
the two syndromes seem to contribute independently to functional impairment among children who have been studied, among participants in studies dealing with RED and DSCT. Now, a lot of these studies do use samples from institutions, so this is kind of an important caution. We don't have a lot of information about RED or DSCD that would form under other circumstances. Another interesting point here is it's extremely rare that somebody would have reactive attachment disorder without having comorbid disinhibited social engagement disorder. So if somebody has RAD, it's quite likely they also have DSCD. So both of these disorders, with all this in mind though, are again very rare. We see very few studies published on these disorders. And they're considered one of the least evidence-based sets of disorders in the DSM. RAD used to be referred to as RAD inhibited type in DSM-4, and the disorder that would eventually become DSED was referred to as RAD disinhibited type. So these two disorders started out as really just two types of RAD, again in DSM-4. In DSM-5, we see them as separate disorders. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. So as I mentioned, in theory, differentiating RAD from DSCD shouldn't be that challenging. But differentiating these two disorders from autism is particularly challenging. These disorders share similar social difficulties, and research on how to differentiate them is uncommon. There's not only kind of a controversy over differentiation, but there's a controversy over this idea that RAD cannot be diagnosed in somebody who meets the criteria for autism. The two disorders have different etiology, so it really doesn't seem to make a lot of sense that they couldn't be comorbid. The etiology for RAD, of course, is that pattern of extremes of insufficient care. Actually, that's the only known risk factor for that disorder. And in terms of the etiology for autism, autism is considered a neurodevelopmental disorder with a strong genetic component. For example, if we look at twin studies, we see that if one twin has autism spectrum disorder, the chances that the other twin will have it are about 76%. There's some other studies that even have higher percentages than that. So a strong genetic contribution to autism and with RAD, we don't know of any genetic risk factors. Now, research indicates that RAD and autism can co-occur, 
and the symptoms that are unique to autism can differentiate clients with comorbid RAD autism from those with just RAD. And actually, this information, these unique symptoms of autism, can help this differentiation occur at a very high degree of accuracy. So there's a lot of certainty in terms of separating these two disorders, interestingly, again, by using the unique symptoms of autism. So what are the symptoms that are unique to autism that can help differentiate these disorders? Well, we see restricted and obsessive interests, repetitive stereotyped play, like lining up toys. We see stereotypies. So stereotypies would be rhythmic, repetitive, fixed, predictable, but purposeless movements like flapping and waving of the arms, hand flapping, head nodding, and rocking back and forth. We also see craving movement, so excessive running, jumping, and swinging. We see distress with crowds, a fascination with repetitive movements, like watching a fan. If somebody's a picky eater, so limited food preferences or hypersensitivity to food texture. We see repetitive speech, like rote phrases, and unusual fears. So those symptoms can help differentiate the two disorders. Also, individuals with autism rarely have a history of social neglect. So again, there are quite a few ways that we can separate RAD from autism. Now in the DSM, there's nothing that indicates that DSED and autism cannot be comorbid. So a clinician is allowed to diagnose DSED even if the criteria for autism are met. The DSM, of course, does indicate, as I mentioned, that you cannot diagnose RAD and autism at the same time. Now, when we look at the research literature, a lot of times we see that RAD is put together with DSED. So they're put together and there's like a slash separating them. So they're treated really as one concept. And the literature reports that you can't diagnose one of those disorders and autism at the same time. So where does that come from? If the DSM really doesn't say anything about DSED and autism, how come we keep seeing that in the research literature? Well, that's because the ICD has a different standard. The ICD indicates that RAD and DSED are the same in terms of this property, meaning they can't be diagnosed if autism is present. So this is a difference between the way the ICD and the DSM handle this issue of comorbidity with autism. So with all this in mind, though, is there a good case for this rule? Is it really true that somebody can't have RAD or DSED and autism at the same time? Well, there's really no obvious reason why this should be the case, right? It does appear that these conditions can be comorbid. This rule in the DSM and the two rules in the ICD about RAD and about DSED really don't make sense based on the evidence we have, but the problem is we don't have a lot of evidence. So in a sense, I guess this is interpreted as kind of playing it safe, like going right to autism and not worrying about RAD or DSCD, even if we see that the symptoms are there. But again, there's not really a scientific reason to believe this. In practice, it actually does make sense that somebody could have RAD or DSCD and have autism at the same time. Now, again, with the symptoms being similar, that's what gets a lot of clinicians confused. And I think to some extent, it becomes confusing for researchers because they're not working with a lot of information. And we have a lot of studies with populations from institutions and not studies with populations from other areas. So this just becomes very challenging to make any type of definitive 
statement on what you can or can't do with these diagnoses. Now, it's interesting when we look at RAD and DSCD, we see that the comorbidity with these disorders is actually quite high. 70% of those with RAD or DSCD have oppositional defiant disorder, 55% have conduct disorder, and 30% have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So again, a substantial amount of comorbidity with these disorders. Now, another interesting point about the DSM and how it reports on RAD, it says that in terms of the associated features with RAD, that we should expect to see developmental delays and stereotypies. I mentioned those before as something unique to autism. We see in studies that few or no children who participate in these studies who had RAD and DSAD without autism reported stereotypies. So stereotypies do not seem to be part of reactive attachment disorder or disinhibited social engagement disorder. So that's really different than what's stated in the DSM. So if a clinician is working with a child with RAD or DSAD, and we see stereotypies observed in that child, the clinician may want to consider comorbid autism. Again, the official rules forbid it, but in reality, it's something a clinician should consider. Sometimes the rules of the DSM, and for that matter, the ICD, must be broken, right? Clinical experience and doing what's necessary to help the clients, like accurately diagnosing and delivering treatment, that comes first before the rules we see in the DSM. So if there's a comorbid presentation of RAD and autism spectrum disorder, that's what it is. Even though the DSM says it can't be that way, a clinician can still note that in the chart and treat the client for both disorders. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. The producers for this show are Christopher Breitigan and Madison Linden. The executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. For more content, please visit our website at arslanga.media. To leave feedback or suggestions, send an email to info at arslanga.media. To find more content from Dr. Grande, including a link to his YouTube channel and his other Ars Longa podcasts, visit our website at arslanga.media. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical or mental health advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard note.